Our passage this morning will be from Psalm 27. On December 5th, 2012, there was a doctor, an American doctor, serving in Afghanistan. And he was coming down from where he'd been working at a clinic in a remote mountain village. And as he was driving back down to the capital city, he was ambushed. And the vehicle was stopped by a group of enemy fighters. And it was clear that they were surrounded. There was no way out. And they dragged the doctor out, and they took him. Uh, on a long, circuitous path through all of these remote uh, mountain roads. And then they got out and they started hiking. And they hiked further and further away from civilization and from anything that was known. And he felt this was the end. This was, this was it. And they took him to a remote compound. <clears throat> and they planned to kill him at some point in the future. And... In his pocket or with his belongings was a very important thing. Now, he couldn't have used his scalpels or his medicine to fight off these Taliban. There were too many of them. There weren't things that he had in his human strength to be able to, to do these, to, to subdue these uh, enemies. But somewhere in his possessions was an American passport. And that represented something to his country, and it represented a commitment to care for the people who carried that passport. And so unbeknownst to him, as he's waiting to die, there's a group of his fellow countrymen that are planning a rescue. And four days later, there's the latest in military helicopters that come through the night, and they set down hours away from him. He has no idea what's happening. And he is woken up in the middle of the night as special forces come, and they attack the compound, and one of the soldiers who comes in throws himself on top of him to protect his body if there's any shrapnel that comes. And he's rescued, and they carry him out, and he's taken away. We think of this, and we've heard stories like this, but we, we forget the privileges that we have. We, we think of maybe that's one privilege of being an American, that if you're in that danger and that happens, that maybe rescue could come. But there are privileges that are given to God's people. The Navy SEALs can only get to you if they know where you are, or if it's, it's a mission that they can accomplish, or if it aligns with the priorities of the government. But God gives special privileges for his people, and we're going to look at some of these in Psalm 27 today. The question is, how do we respond to fear? And it's just as relevant today as when this psalm was written. Fear is all around us, and we can be gripped and even terrorized by it. Truly, fear can be debilitating. Our culture offers a host of products and services to seek to make the fear manageable, that offer to be our first line of defense, to provide something that will give us a sense of security. We have insurance and lawyers. We have locks and alarm systems. 
We have self-defense classes and guns and self-help books and thicker doors and stronger bike locks. But none of these can really deal with fear, or they deal with it just for a while, and then when they give out, you're kind of on your own. And in God's providence, Psalm 27 tells us about special privileges given to his people to fight back against fear that are always present. So would you join me as we read through Psalm 27? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for giving us your word And we ask now that you would open our eyes by your spirit. We need your spirit and your help. We pray that you would be at work helping, guiding our hearts and minds to truth, and that you would equip us through this psalm to trust you more in ways that bring you honor and glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, King David was no coward. By the time He was a young man and recognized by the military leadership in his country. He had already stopped a bear, killed a lion, and killed a Philistine giant. Uh, God made David king over Israel and gave him great victories. And the story of David's life is a lot like uh, reading about a Medal of Honor winner. First and Second Samuel describe a series of military triumphs against formidable enemies, and 
If you haven't been here in recent years, our, our uh, senior pastor, Samuel Clintock, has, been, has preached a series through 1 Samuel that you can actually find on the website. And it's very encouraging to hear all of the ways that God worked uh, in and through David's life in establishing him uh, and guiding him through many threats. But we know that David had fears. And in 1 Samuel 21, it talks about uh, when he was brought before the enemy king of Gath. And it says he was much afraid, and he pretended to be insane just so that he could get out of there. Uh, you would think that maybe David has, has uh, fake fears or, or just impressions of fears, but these are legitimate fears. He has a father-in-law who is legitimately crazy, and his people, there are people who are out trying to kill him. David is someone we picture as being very courageous, but Psalm 27 expresses his fears. And God seems determined throughout Scripture to highlight the weaknesses of his people, even heroes. And the weaknesses often include great fear. We see Abraham was willing to give his wife to another king because he was so afraid of dying. I mean, what kind of husband is that? We see Moses terrified to be sent to uh, Pharaoh, even though God promises to go with him. We see Elijah have a tremendous victory on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal, and then he runs from one simple threat from Queen Jezebel. And of course, we know of Peter, who denied Jesus in a moment of fear, uh, denied him three times. It's a tremendous comfort that we see that God's people do struggle with fear sometimes. I do and you might too. Or maybe you don't struggle with fear now, but there might be some time in the future. So this might be for a rainy day. Psalms like this one, like Psalm 27, are go-tos for God's people in dealing with all kinds of situations. And the Psalms in general provide rich material for prayer and meditation. Uh, If you don't know how to pray, consider going to the Psalms and taking a Psalm like Psalm 27, and turning it into a prayer to God. We see that God helps his people fight fear throughout Scripture. There are 300-plus references to not fearing. Now, we don't know when Psalm 27 was written in David's life or where, but it has consistent, lifelong themes throughout the rest of David's life. And there are two points to our journey through Psalm 27 today. Uh, These are not the only two privileges of God's people, but they're two that we see in this passage. And the first point is that God's protective care is the privilege of his people. God's protective care is the privilege of his people. The world counsels self-reliance to us, digging down deep, trying to find the inner strength to continue and go on. But David immediately begins responding to fear here in verse 1 in a completely different way. We see the foundation of David's confidence comes from who God is and the things he knows to be true about God. Now, there are several kinds of fear referenced in Scripture, and today we're talking about the harmful kind of fear. Uh, David tells elsewhere in Psalm 19 that there's the fear of the Lord, and that's a fear of uh, displeasing God, of dishonoring him, a reverence for him, uh, and that is designed to, to draw us to him. But the fear that we're talking about today is the kind of fear that grips us, that terrifies and controls in a harmful way. And immediately where David goes is to three characteristics, three of the nature and names of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Uh, light is God's first creation in Genesis 1, where he says, let there be light. And light represents all kinds of good things in scripture. We think of all of the ways that light helps us. There's sunlight that controls the weather and causes the plants to grow. Uh, we see how a flashlight illuminates our path on a dark night. We see the light that comes from a campfire that warms us. And even as we've learned more about the nature of light, we've discovered new kinds of light. Ultraviolet light can sterilize uh, water and kill bacteria. X-ray light can reveal bone structure and cavities and breaks. And infrared light can show infection in our body. God wants to be our light, and he works in our life through his spirit and through his word. In Psalm 119, verse 105, David said, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The question is, where do we turn for illumination when we are confused and fearful? Second, David calls God his salvation, his rescuer. David doesn't expect his army or his strength or his cleverness or even his track record to be his help. The question is, what are you trusting? And where do you expect your help will come from? <clears throat> it's easy for us to turn first to things other than God and not make our first stop God. Uh, where do you put your expectation in your situation working out? Third, God references, uh, David references God as his stronghold. Now, this would be a very familiar picture to Israelites. Uh, the, the mountain all, uh, outside of Jerusalem called Masada is near the Dead Sea, and it's near En Gedi, where David ran away from Saul. And at different times, one place it references that he went up to the stronghold, whether it's Masada or somewhere else. Masada was the place where the defenders of Jerusalem, after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, fled, and they held out for a very long time in addition to that against the Roman Empire. A stronghold is the very safest place to be when all other refuge has failed. And the question for us is, where do we turn for refuge? So who God is forms the foundation of our confidence and the place that we can turn when we are facing fear. In verse 3, David says, Though an army should encamp against me, though war should arise. David should know these things. He is a soldier. Yet he places his confidence not in force or political genius or strategy, but in God. How different this is from Saul, uh, David's predecessor and king, who would trust God when it was convenient to him. He would use God as a bit of a crutch, uh, and he would expect other people to fall into line with this, but he was really in it for himself. Uh, David contrasts with Saul, and he calms his heart with the truth about God, even with an imminent threat. Are you tempted to think sometimes that truth about God is theoretical or abstract or distant? This psalm reminds us that knowing who God is it has very practical reality in the gritty daily uh, challenges of life. And in our fears, we have to remind ourselves of who God is and his abundant ability to deliver. Now, our cars run on gas, our trucks run on diesel, our bodies run on food, but our hearts and our minds were designed by God, and they need truth fuel, and we put in the right fuel when we fill them with God's truth. In the New Testament, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in Matthew 4, he models the use of scripture rightly applied 
to successfully fight temptation. And in Ephesians 6, he, uh, the word of God is called the sword of the spirit. That's an offensive weapon. Don't underestimate the way the truth about God fuels our fight against our fears. The scripture you read helps you to combat the lies. And memorizing scripture and reading scripture are great ways to do it. Memorizing scripture, you can recall it in the middle of the night. You don't even have to turn the light on, or maybe you don't have a Bible with you, or maybe your phone's dead. Memorizing scripture means that you have those verses with you. A couple months ago, we read the missionary biography of Darlene Dibler Rose. She was held prisoner because she was uh, a missionary in a war zone. And while she was held in prison, her Bible was taken away from her. And she was from uh, just this rural area, but she writes this about the experience. This is in the book that we read this summer. As a child and young person, I had had a driving compulsion to memorize the written word. In the cell, I was grateful now for those days in VBS when I had memorized many single verses, complete chapters and psalms, as well as whole books of the Bible. In the years that followed, I reviewed the scriptures often. The Lord fed me with the living bread that had been stored against the day when fresh supply was cut off by the loss of my Bible. He brought daily comfort and encouragement, yes, and joy to my heart through the knowledge of the word. Paul the Apostle wrote that it was through the comfort of the scriptures that he had hope and steadfastness of heart to believe God. I had never needed the scriptures more than in these months on death row, but since so much of his word was there in my heart, it was not a punishment the guards had anticipated when they took my Bible. Um, knowing scripture and knowing truth helps us, and one way to do that is to read it, and one way is to memorize it so that we have it in our hearts. And the application is, what kind of fuel are you putting to your heart every day? Running on the fuel of truth about who God is gives David boldness that different endings are possible. Now, despair happens when we think we know how this will all play out. And throughout history, God has worked for his people to interrupt those trends. He says in verse 5, for he will hide me in his shelter. He will conceal. He will lift me high. Deliverance comes through God's working. Our world prizes probabilities and statistics and predictive models for what will happen. But when the God who invented math is on your side, things can change. <clears throat> One weak person plus the Lord of hosts on their side is a complete majority. And God has unlimited ways to stop your enemies. No matter how things look, God is still in charge. And throughout history, he has intervened to save his people when everyone thought they knew what was going to happen next. At the end of David's life, we see God had delivered from the lion, from the bear, from Goliath, from Saul, from the Amalekites, from the Philistines, and even from his son Absalom and a rebellion. The Bible gives us a catalog of the deliverances of God's people. It's incomplete, though. He has unlimited ways that he can do this. He can use weather or interruptions or technology failure or wild animals or communication breakdowns or disobedient donkeys. Uh, he can use... E. coli or distracted guards or sleep or hunger or general confusion to protect his people. And studying history is a faith-building exercise because we see God at work in the lives and hearts of his people to rescue them. It says in Psalm 33 that he brings the counsel of the people to nothing. And reading biographies is a great way to see God at work. 
You know, the Navy SEALs are remarkable, but they have a very narrow specialty. If you get out of the Navy SEALs, it's hard to transfer that directly to the workplace. Uh, they can rescue if they know what's happening, if they know where you are. But this uh, understanding who God is and reading the stories of his work introduces you to the incredible capacity of God to deliver his people at any time, at any place. Now, sometimes in God's providence, he miraculously delivers us through from trials, and sometimes he delivers us through trials. We see this in Hebrews 11. There are amazing victories of faith where believers quenched the violence of fire, but others were tortured, it says, not accepting deliverance. And sometimes being faithful to God doesn't look like a human victory. It doesn't look like an escape from prison. But we are God's servants and not the other way around. In the fiery furnace story in Daniel, we see that three Israelites were confronted with a choice. Would they bow down to an idol or would they, uh, would they remain true to God? And the king of Babylon, the most powerful ruler of the world, called them in and says, I'm going to give you one more chance. We're going to try this all again, and you're going to do as I say. And they said, they responded to him, we don't need a second chance. Uh, we know that God is able to deliver us from these, these flames, this threat of being thrown into this blazing oven. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you also. And he warns his followers that uh, just as he suffered persecution, his disciples should expect the same thing. Being a follower of Jesus does not mean we will not suffer. And Paul represents this in Philippians where he says, uh, either way is okay. To live is Christ and to die is gain. So whether we live or die, we are in God's hands and we are protected by him. So knowing who God is gives his people confidence in the face of fear. And when confronted by fear, we should look to who the truth of who God is, to our light, our salvation, and our stronghold, and remember his truth. He can deliver his people through the power of his infinite means. That's our first point. God's protective care is the privilege of his people. Another theme appears in verse 4 here, and it's a little bit puzzling because David's desire, we see in verse 4, is first and foremost for a relationship with God. He says, One thing have I desired of the asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. We would naturally say in our flesh, Get me out of here so I can get back to what I was doing. And that was the pattern that we see in the book of Judges, where people would cry out to God for deliverance, he would deliver them, and then they would go right back to what they were doing. This is different. David wants deliverance, but more than that, the most that he wants is relationship with God. That's very different from Saul, who just asked for God's help when convenient. And our second point is that closeness to God is the privilege of his people. Closeness to God is the privilege of his people. David wants to spend time with God to learn more about him, and he wants God to teach him. His life pattern is to know God, and we see that this isn't just a one-time crisis prayer. But this shows up again and again throughout First and Second Samuel and Psalms. Now, the closeness is attractive because David has come to know who God is. And the more we know someone to be of good character, the more likely we are to trust them. God's people come to desire God's presence. Paul says to depart and to be with Christ is far better, but I know that for right now, it's probably better that I stick around for a little longer in Philippians 1. 
There have been times as a young adult for me when I looked rather superstitiously on my quiet time or reading with God that maybe if I read more, he would bless me more, or maybe if, if I spent more time in prayer that things would be guaranteed to happen in a certain way. And I know now that that's not how God works. The question is, do we desire God's presence most of all? What are the priorities your friends and family would say dominate your life? In this busy culture in the city of Austin, the temptations to not spend time with God are numerous. But if we're so busy that we don't have time to spend with God, something is wrong. Busyness is truly a threat to the life of Christians. In verse 8, David says, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. It's like two friends who want to be together. And if you don't have these kinds of desires for God in the way that he's describing, the answer is not to just work harder and try harder. The, ask, the, the answer is to ask God to change your heart and to give you these desires for him, to beg him to be your hunger and thirst. He says in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Young people, you need to think about your relationship with God. God doesn't save people by proximity. You're not saved simply by living under the same roof as Christians, as your parents. And right now, you may do family devotion time, but at some point in your life, you will, lose, you will leave home, and you will have to decide whether you will be a follower of God. Um, you can follow God now, but the question comes, uh, are you going to follow just because of your parents, or are you going to follow God individually? Same thing for college students. You are here on your own. You've now created new life patterns. And the question is, what kind of patterns will you create? What ruts will you etch? Who is the spouse that you will marry? And how will you lead and guide and uh, go towards God together? Now, some blessings are enjoyed by all humans. And this is called common grace in Scripture. Unbelievers are not allowed into God's presence except for judgment. But in Matthew 5, Jesus says he makes the sun shine on the evil and on the good. But being alive doesn't mean that you're automatically part of God's family. The privileges of protection and presence in Psalm 27 are not for everyone, only for God's children. And only those who are part of God's family, those who have come through Jesus, can come to him in these ways that David describes. Non-believers can even sound a lot like a believer, like a Christian, but they can even be deceived in their relationship with God. Jesus says that he is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father through him. These are bold and audacious claims, even offensive to many, but we see again and again from Scripture that Jesus is God's uh, rescue plan. And those who refuse to trust in Jesus are actually spitting in the face of God. Those who bring their good works or the fact that they're an exemplary employee or a good parent or a community donor or a regular volunteer or a church attender, uh, all of these things don't matter to God. It's only what is your relationship to Jesus. God saves people one by one, and he only saves them through Jesus and his completed work. Each of us will be evaluated by the perfect judge, not based on a Christian heritage or our church attendance or even how nice and polite we are, but on how we have responded to Jesus. 
And on judgment, your parents won't be there to answer for you before the judge. It'll be you and God. Don't be unprepared for that or try to face the blowtorch of God's wrath uh, alone without Jesus. Don't ignore his means of deliverance. The Bible says it won't work. But for those who come to God through Jesus, they have a hope. So confident is David in God's acceptance of him that in verses 7 through 12, he can voice these fears and doubts. Now, if God were intimidated, the Bible would be filled with cheerful, Instagram-ready, positive messages about God's happy people who never struggle. But we see in Scripture flawed, infallible people throughout the Bible. And in verses 7 through 12, it should be a tremendous encouragement for us that God does not hide the struggles of his people, their foibles, or their weakness. We've seen in verses 1 through 6 amazing trust and confidence so far from David. But in verses 7 through 12, David pours out his heart about his lingering fears. He knows the truth about God, and yet he's struggling. And the things he says show us that we can and should take our fears to God, and he will hear us and not hold it against us. Brother and sister, do you take your fears to God? Do you think you can only come to him when you have it all together? We see throughout scripture God's loving heart that delights in hearing us even in our weakness and our fear. So tell him honestly how you're feeling and turn your fears into prayer. Be willing also to express your struggles to other people who can help you. I love the way that John Piper talks about the battle against anxiety. He says it like this, Suppose you are in a car race, and your enemy, who doesn't want you to finish the race, throws mud on your windshield. The fact that you temporarily lose sight of your goal and start to swerve does not mean that you are going to quit the race. And it certainly doesn't mean that you're on the wrong racetrack. Otherwise, the enemy wouldn't bother you at all. What it means is that you should turn on your windshield wipers and use your windshield washer. When anxiety strikes and blurs our vision of God's glory and the greatness of the future that he plans for us, this does not mean that we are faithless or that we will not make it to heaven. It means that our faith is being attacked. At first blow, our belief in God's promises may sputter and swerve, but whether we stay on track and make it to the finish line depends on whether, by grace, we set in motion a process of resistance, whether we fight back against the unbelief and anxiety. Will we turn on the windshield wipers and use our windshield washer? When the mud splatters your windshield and you temporarily lose sight of the road and start to swerve, turn on your wipers and squirt your windshield washer fluid. Uh, The promises of God, he says, the windshield wipers are the promises of God that clear away the mud of unbelief. And the windshield washer fluid is the help of the Holy Spirit. Without the softening work of the Holy Spirit, the wipers of the word just scrape over the blinding clumps of unbelief. Both are necessary, the Spirit and the word. We read the promises of God, and we pray for the help of his Holy Spirit. And as the windshield clears so that we can see the welfare that God plans for us, our faith grows stronger, and the swerving of anxiety smooths out. I love the way that he describes that. So when we're fearful or anxious, what matters is how do we respond to that? And in verse 9, we see David say, you who have been my help. David knows these truths, and he's headed back to these truths. But right now, David feels abandoned and alone. And we see it in verse 10 also. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. 
Dear friend, do you feel abandoned by those closest to you? Maybe it's your family or people that you have trusted. Remember that adoption is the privilege of those who come to Jesus. Adoption is the privilege of those who come to Jesus. And when those closest to you abandon you, God sees and he knows. God promises, uh, what Jesus promises mothers, brothers, sisters, fathers with persecution to his followers. And when God adopts us, he takes you into his family and you get adopted, the solitary joined in with a family. For the New Testament believer, this is the church. And we have the privilege of ministering to those around us who are adopted members into the family of God. This adoption is good news for us but it came at great cost for God. Have you considered that because Jesus was forsaken by God, because he took on our sins and carried our sins and was, uh, suffered the death penalty that we deserved, and God raised him from the dead, showing that, that that sacrifice was accepted, because that happened, because God turned his face away from Jesus, we will never be rejected as his people. We see that promise at the end of Matthew 28. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. We have clarity on this side of the cross that Old Testament saints like David could only dream of. God call, David calls God his salvation and looks forward expectantly to what God will do. Now, the name Jesus means God is salvation. And we live on the other side of this all-important pivot point in history. For those who come to God through Jesus, we have special privileges. We have adoption whereby we can call God our Heavenly Father, our Abba Father, an endearing term for our Father. We have access in Ephesians 3. It says we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And we have the Holy Spirit sent at Jesus' request by the Father to dwell in believers and to sanctify us, to bring about the sanctification that we read about earlier in the congregational reading. <clears throat> Old Testament saints didn't have the same indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we have now. And God promises to change and sanctify us through his spirit, not through our effort, but through his spirit. And we have a God who will direct us if we ask. We see that in verse 11. David says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. A high-stakes situation makes for an attentive student. And in verse 13 and 14, the final two verses of the psalm, we see David summarize his confidence in God. God does not promise goodness only in this next life, although there is absolutely that but he promises his goodness starting now for his people. The peace that he gives, the joy, the love, all of those things uh, through his Holy Spirit he gives to us now, as well as the courage to face fear. His goodness might be different than what you think. It is not necessarily, it's not going to be money or cars or houses or those kinds of things. God promises his presence with his people. For me, verse 13 was especially meaningful during the pandemic. Uh, I am rather poor at waiting for things and rather impatient. And so after about, uh, after a very long time passed and I felt like the pandemic should be over, 
namely about two weeks, I was ready to uh, move on with life. And the waiting was very hard, just the way that all of the rhythms stopped. And sometimes it felt like everything that I read seemed like uh, it was going to be, oh, that's in another life. And that is true that God gives us the tremendous blessings of that. But verse 13 was a special encouragement. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And changing mentality and thinking through what are the good things that God has provided right now and here. We see this gratitude show up throughout this psalm. David has mentioned it in verse 6, the deliverance. And we see in verse 13 as well. Uh, Brothers and sisters, encourage your heart by looking around at the good that God is doing right now in your life. There's God's faithfulness in your past bringing you to this very point. There's his character, the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the promises from the eternal, unchanging God that are still in force today. And you have the promise of his word, the future things that he will never leave you nor forsake you. So David's confidence translates to a final call to wait for the Lord. Now, waiting on God in American English, or waiting, can sound like clock-watching or inaction, but that's actually not what this means. And the Hebrew has the idea of binding or twisting together. And the passage that Bogdan read for us earlier speaks beautifully to God's work on behalf of those who wait for him. James Oswald, a commentator, said it like this. In the Bible, to wait on God is not simply to mark time. Rather, it is to live in confident expectation of his action on our behalf. It is to refuse to run ahead, to refuse to run ahead of him in trying to solve our problem for ourselves. Waiting on God is talking to him and handing it over to him. We wait on the Lord when we go to him before beginning our plans and we submit our ideas to him. It's living in an expectant hope so that if the master shows up, we would not be embarrassed for how we have been waiting. A good prayer for this is to say, Lord, direct or redirect me in any way. I want your will to be done more than mine. And the more acquainted we are with God, the more confident we become of his ability to deliver us no matter what happens. Friends, fear is everywhere, in David's time and in ours, but it doesn't have to control us. With the world's methods, you're on your own against fear, or maybe you have some heroic moment where the Navy SEALs come in and rescue you, but then you're on your own again next time. Or maybe they're busy and they can't come rescue you. The difference with God's protection is that he always hears and he gives his presence to his people. This psalm calls us to remember who God is, his ability to deliver, his special care for his people. It calls us to seek to know him for who he is and to take our anxieties to him. Make your life habit of including him in your daily decisions and thank him for his work through Christ. He's always there 24-7. We know that we have the privilege of his protective care to remember that who God is his ability to save, both his deliverance from and his deliverance through. And we have, second, the privilege of his presence, knowing in Christ the dreams of the Old Testament saints have come true. We do have boldness and access with confidence to the throne room of heaven. And we also have his spirit and the promise of life with him forevermore. 
With these, we have the privilege of his active involvement in his life and the promises of his goodness that don't start in the next life, but have already started in this one. We have a long history of God's people showing courageous trust in God. We have the heroes of faith in scripture that we see in Hebrews 11, but we also have the heroes of the decades since. And if you haven't looked at Christian history and all you see is the end of the book of Acts and then your life, and you miss all of these stories of God at work through his people, you're missing uh, an important part of the family history. The heroes of the decades since have fiercely trusted God in spite of all the odds against him. They've believed him and stood for truth. They've expressed their fears honestly, and he's helped them. They've moved toward danger when everyone ran away, at the cost up to and including their earthly lives. Darlene Rose, when she was on death row, had a particularly scary moment. She had been condemned to death and was waiting. The way that God delivered her, you'll have to read the book to find out about that. And it's a worthy read. Um, But she wrote about one particular night that was especially dangerous. There were some drunken soldiers that came into the prison cell. And there was a little man who was the night watchman. And she could hear the commotion and all of this chaos that was happening out there. And she heard, as she was praying for protection, she heard the night watchman say, oh, the prisoners have all left. They were saying, where's the American? And she said, the prisoners have all left. Uh, The watchman said that. And eventually, she heard them start to move away. And she wrote, this 27th Psalm was a great comfort to me that night. Every verse was apropos, but especially verses 3 and 8. In the soft light of the morning hours, I repeated those verses aloud. I had spent a restless night wondering if the drunks would return. I knew that without God, without that consciousness of his presence in every troubled hour, I could never have made it. Lord, don't ever leave me or forsake me. Your wonderful presence has made this cell a place of beauty, a sacred place like a chapel lighted by your presence. Because of who God is, his people, weak as they are in their own strength, are given his strength. And they can take courage and grow strong against fear, whatever comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God of protection and presence. A God of personal involvement in our lives who gives your people confidence. Thank you that you promise these things to your people, to those who turn to you in repentance and faith. And you give us the spiritual blessings uh, that, that come from your bounty and abundance. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus who gives us the ability to come into your throne room and gives us confidence before you. We ask that you would grant us to love you and to desire you as a congregation in new ways. Grow our trust of you and make us courageous for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.